our Old Testament text, uh, Old Testament reading and text for the sermon this morning is Psalm 96. And then our New Testament reading is Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. So if you would turn there and put your finger there and then turn back to Psalm 96. Hear the word of the Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And then our New Testament reading from the book of the Revelation to John chapter 11, beginning with verse 15. And the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the reading and for the hearing of your word And yes, even word about your coming judgment at the end of this age. And a part of us cries out, Lord, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly in in consummation, in our salvation, but also in the judgment of the wicked who revile your name. You will judge the world with equity because you are God of righteousness. 
but you have rescued us through Jesus Christ, the righteous who died in our place. We thank you for that. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Grant to your servant now the strength and unction of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is going to be a very different sermon. We are going to touch on one verse in this psalm. Next time, Lord willing, when I come back, we'll take up the psalm in its entirety. But as you know, since I began this series between now and when Matthew gets here, in studying selected psalms, as we've worked our way through the Psalter, specially chosen psalms to focus on, um, that um, I've I've been trying to to tell you, I've been trying to, we talked about this in Sunday School this morning, trying to get a hold of you to say, study the arrangement of the psalms in the Psalter. It's going to help you tremendously if you do that. And so what I've tried to do with each of them is to come with a relatively brief introduction that sets that psalm within its context in the Psalter. But this time, as I was doing all of that preparatory work, it was more and more and more and more. Then you have to, as a minister, say, what do I trim? What is left on the study floor? What do I bring uh, to the the sermon? And since I didn't think you would want to be here for a two-hour sermon... What I've decided to do, and this is what happened, is I began to study this. It just, it grew and it grew and it grew. And I realized this is the perfect time to bring the strings together, what I've been doing over the past few months, um, culminating in the placement of this particular psalm. It became a sermon in its own right. And so, like I said, we're going to briefly look at one verse in the psalm most of this is going to be asking the question, why is this psalm here in the Psalter, and where did this psalm come from? Who put the Psalter together? Where does this psalm come from? And it's extraordinary when you see this. But first, I want to bring the strings together. We began, we revisited Psalm 1 and 2. I had forgotten that I had preached them until Jake reminded me, oh, I remember, no, you preached this here, and I went back and looked, and I had. But I wanted to bring the Psalter before you, so we began in the beginning with Psalms 1 and 2, which introduce us into the Psalter as a whole. One is a law psalm, Psalm 1. One is a messianic psalm, Psalm 2. We find that coupling three places in the Psalter strategically placed. 18 Messiah Psalm, 19 Law Psalm, 118 Messiah Psalm, 119 a Law Psalm. But we find it up front with one and two. And so we have law and gospel that's put before us as we're entering into the study of the Psalter. Next, we went to Psalm 8. And I picked Psalm 8 because I wanted to preach it. Uh, but also because it is a messianic psalm as well as a creation hymn. And the one thing that we noted by where it is is that it comes right before the first acrostic psalm. Nine is an acrostic psalm, and ten 
is an acrostic psalm. And one thing I want you to take from these things is there are certain bookmarks. This Messiah law coupling is a bookmark. You find one, you put a bookmark there and say what goes before it, what comes after it. Acrostic psalms serve as bookmarks. If you find one, there's something that's going to come after it. And then you look for the other bookmark to see what division you find that's there. A change in authorship, the same thing. A series of Psalms on the sons of Korah, suddenly a series from David. Why the change in authorship? These are important bookmarks to help you understand the way the Psalter is, is arranged. And with Psalm 8, what we found is that it comes right before an acrostic psalm. And lo and behold, in all of the acrostic psalms, except for the last one in book 1, the psalm that precedes, it's a creation hymn. And in this case, Psalm 8 is a creation hymn. But it's also messianic, as the writer to the Hebrews clearly shows us. Then we looked at 24 and 29. 24 and 29 both come in chiastic structures, or what Dr. Robertson refers to as poetic pyramids. What do you need for a poetic pyramid? An odd number of psalms that are thematically related, and your eyes go to the middle psalm, the pinnacle psalm. We have that with 24, not as the pinnacle psalm, but the ending psalm of a five-psalm chiastic structure or poetic pyramid. Beginning with 20, ending with 24. What's the theme? They're kingship psalms. Kingship psalms. Psalm 20 and 21, Messiah kingship psalms. That is the king here on earth. David, little m, Messiah. Jesus, big m, Messiah. Messiah kingship psalms. But then 23 and 24 are Yahweh kingship psalms. These two kingships we see throughout the Psalter. That's important to understand why 96 is where it is when we get to it. And then Psalm 22, the pinnacle psalm of that one, is Messiah kingship in his humiliation, his crucifixion. But then it is exaltation and resurrection. And then he declares the kingship of Yahweh. Both come together in the pinnacle psalm. And then we went to 29, a seventh psalm, a seven-psalm chiastic structure or poetic pyramid. What is the theme? The theme is regal dwelling places psalms. The first ones begin with the, the dwelling place of Yahweh who is king. It's here on earth in the temple or in the house of God, the tabernacle. That's the focus. But as you come to the end of that chiastic structure, there's a shift. Now, where does the king who's here on earth dwell? And the answer is not what you expect. It's not on Mount Zion. He dwells within God himself. You are my refuge. You are my dwelling place. Psalm 29 is the pinnacle psalm. Which is it? Well, it's Yahweh kingship. But where does he dwell? Here, not in the temple on earth, but in the invisible heavens. His feet extend down. He's enthroned over the flood. His feet extend down. Well, of course, God doesn't have feet. We know that. We're using anthropomorphic language there. But it's as were he rules from heaven over the earth, and his judgments are just, even just, in the flood 
itself. That is, in Noah's flood. And that's the covenant that's underneath that one. So the dwelling place of God in heaven, his earthly dwelling place in tabernacle temple on earth, and the king who dwells in God himself. So all of those were focused in book one. I would remind you, I'm bringing the strings together now, okay? It's Dr. Morales that helps us understand the five books as they unfold, all rooted and grounded in the covenant God made with David and in the history of the Davidic kingdom. Book one, the rise of the Davidic kingdom. Book two, the glory of the Davidic kingdom. Book three, the collapse of the Davidic kingdom. Book four, the absence of the Davidic kingdom. Book five, the return of the king. And that brought us to Psalm 80. Next, Psalm 80 is in book three. We skipped book two. We went from book one. We skipped to book three because I wanted to focus on another chiastic structure. And what do we have in 80? It's the middle psalm, the pinnacle psalm of a poetic pyramid that's set off with these bookmark kinds of things I've told you about before. What are they about? They're about the fall of the Davidic kingdom with the hope of restoration. Both the fall of the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., to the Assyrians, and then the fall, the collapse and fall of the southern kingdom, Judah in the south, Jerusalem, 587, 586 B.C. That is the climax of the collapse. When the walls of Jerusalem are torn to the ground, when David's palace is destroyed, when the temple is laid waste, when the people are taken away into captivity, you see, that's the collapse. This poetic pyramid of seven psalms, again, with 80 being the center psalm, you would expect it would be about the collapse of the southern kingdom, Judah, the climactic collapse in the fall of the Davidic kingdom. But we saw it's not. Psalm 79 is, but Psalm 80 is describing the collapse of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom. Psalm 80 is about Joseph and his descendants. And then what did we see? We see that there's a cry for salvation and then there's a cry for a Savior, a Messiah to come. And, and that cry from that psalm and other passages such as the blessing of Joseph has caused some Jewish scholars to believe that there's going to be a messiahship that comes from Joseph. And many of them believe, and a messiah that's going to come from Judah. So which is it? Will Messiah come from Joseph or from Judah? And so some of them speculated, well, there's going to be a Messiah who's going to save the northern kingdom from Joseph. There's going to be a Messiah that's going to save the southern kingdom from Judah. Others said, no, the, the Messianic Joseph is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah who comes from, from Judah. We found, no, no, no. There's one Messiah, his name's Jesus Christ. He is from the tribe of Judah. That's where the scepter would come. He is the son of David. But what did we find when we looked at Joseph in his life? We find a type of the mission of Messiah 
What do we see in Joseph? We see his humiliation when he's thrown into the pit by his brothers. And while he's taken from the pit and sold into bondage and slavery to the Ishmaelites, we see him again in the pit, in humiliation, in the jail, even though he was righteous of what he had been charged. But then we see God exalt him because of his revelations to the right hand of Pharaoh himself. And that's a picture of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That he would be humiliated. That is, his humiliation in incarnation, but then in death and burial, and his exaltation in resurrection and ascension and session at the right hand of God in heaven. The two messianic expectations come together in the one person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we saw in Psalm 80. And then last time we looked at Psalm 90. So we're moving now from book 3, the collapse of the Davidic kingdom, to book 4, the absence of the Davidic kingdom, which corresponds with the Babylonian captivity. And yet, lo and behold... Psalm 90 wasn't written by some Jew that's in exile in the Babylonian captivity. It's written by Moses, hundreds of years even before David. Why is it there? And we saw, to just zoom in on it, it's what he says up front. Moses wrote in the wilderness. Moses wrote, when God's hand of chastisement was heavy upon his people. Why? They believed the ten spies rather than the two. You remember that? The ten rather than the two. And what did God do? He punished them. And his judgment was that they would wander in the wilderness one year for every day that the spies were in the land because they believed those false spies instead of Caleb and Joshua who said, God will give them into our hand. And that was God's judgment coming upon the first generation of those who left Egypt. Every man and woman who was 20 years or older when they left Egypt perished in the wilderness and was buried in the wilderness. Not a single one entered except for Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies. Moses is writing to people in the wilderness when he writes that psalm. But what does he say? He says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place. Remember what we saw earlier about the regal dwelling place of the king in the, in the Lord himself? Moses has already said it. You, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Wherever we've been, under your providential hand. Whether it be a time of blessing or a time of chastisement and judgment, you remain faithful to the covenant. You are our dwelling place. In the land of promise to Abraham, when things are going well, in Egypt when famine hit, received by their brother Joseph, the expansion of the people of God in Egypt, whether in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, you're our dwelling place. When God delivered them by his mighty hand, you're our dwelling place. When he took them to Mount Sinai, you're our dwelling place. When he took them to the brink of the promised land and sent the spies in, you're our dwelling place. When the people faithlessly, faithlessly said, we can't take them. 
and 40 years of wandering, Moses says, you have been our dwelling place. And so now those in another wilderness, generations later, because of unfaithfulness in Babylon, the Lord is still their dwelling place. God is faithful in keeping his covenant and we often break covenant with him. Think about that in terms of your own life and your own experience and how God has been faithful to you even when you're unfaithful to him. And think about restoration. Think of his forgiveness. Even when his hand of chastisement may be heavy and hard for a season. Look to Christ. This is the message of Psalm 90. Now we come to 96. Again, I told you we're going to look at one verse because there's a whole lot of other things to say about why 96 is where it is. Psalm 96, it's in a poetic pyramid. Are you surprised if I picked it? <laughs> a nine psalm poetic pyramid in a book that only has 17 psalms in it. Over the half, half of the psalms are devoted to this one chiastic structure that we have here. What is the message of these nine psalms in the overall book? The message is what we see in verse 10 of 96, which is the pinnacle psalm. Say among the nations... Here's the message. Yahweh reigns. That's the message of these nine psalms, beginning with 92, ending with 100. Yahweh is king. You can read book four from beginning to end. Do you know how many messianic kingship psalms are in it? Zero. None. Why? Because Jerusalem is laid waste during the exile. Remember how... Book 3 comes to an end, the collapse of the Davidic kingdom. I didn't tell you this yet, but Psalm 89 ends that book. It begins by talking about all of the blessings of God and His covenant keeping and provisions made for His people. And then it shifts midway. And how does it end? Where's the throne of David? Where's His crown at the end of Psalm 89? They're in the dust. They're in the dust. That's how Psalm 89 in book 3 comes to an end. There is no son of David upon the throne in Jerusalem during the exile. Has God thrown off his promises? No. And this is why the anticipation, of course, is going to be book 5, which is the return of the king, which is pointing to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But these psalms say, even though David's son is not on the throne, there's not even a throne. There's not even any people there. They've been taken away into exile. There's no temple there. There's no public worship of God on the earth during the time of this Babylonian captivity that doesn't unseat God who's reigning on the throne. Yahweh, Malak, Yahweh reigns. And as we're going to see next time we come, there to be missionaries to Yahweh when they're in captivity. Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. Nothing 
Nothing can unseat him from his throne, and he has his purposes. And all of this is leading to the sending the Savior, whose name is Jesus, and what he'll accomplish. You see how it's coming together? You see pulling the strings together, what we're seeing, the progression we're seeing in the Psalter? The whole of the Bible, can you see how it's here? Let me show you how the narrative of the Old Testament is underneath these Psalms. Psalm 96. Let me just read the first few verses just to see if they ring a bell in your mind. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Well, they should. You just sang them a few minutes ago when we sang uh, 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 this psalm. But besides that, can you think of another place in the Bible where you hear those words? And you may not. You may remember them more from the Psalter than you do from where they originate. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Did you know that there's a psalm in 1 Chronicles that we're going to find out. It's in the Psalter, too. (laughs) You're going to be shocked to see where it is in the Psalter. This is David's song of thanks. First of all, let me just establish that whoever compiled the Psalter, whoever put it together, lifted Psalm 96 almost verbatim from the second portion of this psalm. Lifted it. It's lifted from here. David wrote it. Listen, beginning with verse 23 of 1 Chronicles 16. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Look at verses 28 and 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Now, let those words resonate in your head. Now, listen from Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Do you hear it? It's the same psalm. Whoever put our Psalter together, which I believe he did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the very one who gave us the titles, the very one who arranged the Psalter as we have it in that post-exilic community, Dr. Robertson, Dr. Morales, think it may have been Ezra, the scribe, but we don't know. Maybe someone in association with Ezra lifted this psalm from David. He lifted it from here. Now, what's the context in 1 Chronicles? We, We know the context, Psalm 96. Yahweh Malach psalms in the midst of what? A time that speaks to the Babylonian captivity, a time of God's 
judgment hand, his chastising judgment, his heavy hand upon his people. Rather than raising his face in countenance upon them, they are under his judgment in order to cleanse them and purify them and mature them. Remember, God's judgment that comes upon you when you sin, and sometimes it can be severe, it can be hard upon you. God's purposes are for your sanctification. He is purifying you. He is cleansing you. He is maturing you in him. The very purpose of the wandering in the wilderness, the death of the first generation was to raise up a generation to go in and possess that land, to be a holy people. Though, of course, they failed too. Why? Because we fail. God doesn't, but we do. That's the context where 96 finds itself. But those very same words, that same psalm lifted from here, is in a different context entirely. This psalm was written by David. It was given to Asaph and other singers and musicians. Asaph actually used to play the cymbals when this was sung. When was it sung? It was sung when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the tent that David pitched for it. That's the context. You can read the same event in 2 Samuel, but it doesn't have the psalm. The psalm is in 1 Chronicles. Remember what David did. This is one of the most celebratory events in the history of the Davidic kingdom. It's almost as if this may be when the Davidic kingdom really came into its glory. Because what did David say? I'm going to build you a house, Lord. And the Lord said, no, you're not. I'm going to build you a house. Your son's going to build me a house. But then David says, I heard about it in Ephratah. I heard about it when I was a little boy in Bethlehem. He's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. And he sends his men to go and find it. And then David goes out to, to retrieve it. Why? Because he wants that holy artifact that represents the presence of God, immediate presence of God. He wants that in his holy city of Jerusalem. And he goes in and he gets it. You remember the story. David did everything right but one thing. Because our righteous acts are always intermixed with with, with sin and ignorance. And even with David. He did not honor that holy artifact by transporting it the way God prescribed clearly in his law upon the shoulders of the Kohathites. It came in on an ox cart. And Uzzah had to pay for David's foolishness as they were going to camp for the night and they're going down upon the threshold, one of the oxen stumbles. The cart is tipped. The ark's about to fall. Uzzah studies it to keep it from falling on the ground. And God's wrath is kindled against Uzzah and he's killed like that. And what does David do? He fears the Lord. This is not a godly fear. Not at that point. And he parks the ark there and he goes back into the Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. I'm paraphrasing here, but he seems to be pouting for a season. Saul didn't want the ark of the covenant. He left it out there. I'm the king now. I go get it. I bring it in. And God does this. Again, I'm paraphrasing, reading between the lines of what happened. But David came to his senses. The Lord opened his eyes to see. 
And David went back to retrieve that ark. And this time it's borne upon the shoulders of the Kohathites. And David offers sacrifices. And David begins to dance. David begins to dance and we're told he dances in a linen ephod. And he dances before the ark mightily all the way into Jerusalem and through the streets of Jerusalem, past the palace itself where his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, is watching in order to put it in the tent that he has pitched for it, that the presence of God would be in the midst of a city. And you remember what happened when he went home that night. He did offer burnt offerings And he did offer peace offerings. There was a feast unto the Lord with the peace offerings. Do you know what the bird offering is? It's entire consecration. The whole thing is consumed. It represents the the worshiper. Entire consecration to God. The offering is transformed into smoke and goes up into the nostrils, anthropomorphic again, of God is a pleasing aroma, utter consecration. The peace offering, it was divided among the priests and among the worshipers, and then they would feast together. So you make trespass offering for cleansing of guilt, you make burnt offering of entire consecration of yourself to God and then you feast in fellowship with God and with each other in the old covenant sacrificial system. This psalm will call upon the nations to do precisely that. This is, this is the movement we see in Old Testament worship and it's beautiful to see in terms of redemption. David did this, and then he went home. And his wife said, my, my, how the king showed himself before the maidens of Jerusalem today. Remember? Have you ever wondered why she was so irate? Why was she so offended by David's actions? Nobody else seemed to be. I think I know. It wasn't the way he danced. It was the way he was dressed. He's king. Where's his crown? Where's his robe? Where's his scepter? Where's his white horse? He's not behaving like a king. He's behaving like a peasant priest. That's what he's doing. I'm the queen. You see? And David said, it was before the Lord I danced, and I'll dance before the Lord. And she was banished from him. She was banished from him. What was David, what was he saying when he took off his robes? He was saying, I am not the king of Israel. Yahweh is king. I am but his servant. Take the crown. Take the robe. Take the scepter. Put it in that ox cart back there. I don't need them. I need Yahweh to be my king. He is our king. Do, do you see the utter consecration before the Lord? And then he wrote this song. 
to be sung and performed by Asaph and by the singers. He wrote this psalm for that occasion. And that's why we find it here in First Chronicles. And like I've shown you, it was lifted, at least the last portion of it, other than the last three verses, are lifted all but verbatim. There's a couple little words that are expressed differently. And placed in Psalm 96, what is a Yahweh Malach Psalm? Exactly what David was doing when he removed his robes. But what's true in a time of extraordinary blessing, the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant, is also true in a time when God's judgments are hard upon us because of our sin. It's his love to us. But the question comes, well, what about the rest of the psalm? Why, why, why did whoever do this only pick the last half? Well, he didn't. He, he picked the first half. But let me just read a few of the verses just to get it in your head, and then I'm going to show you where. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, Glory in his holy name. Okay, you have that in your head? Turn back to the Psalter. Turn to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. And I'm going to tell you the significance of 105 after we find it here. Listen to the words. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his... Glory in his holy name. Sound familiar? It should. Why? Because whoever put together the Psalter lifted Psalm 105, or the first half of it, lifted it directly out of David's Psalm in 1 Chronicles 16 and put it here. He put it here. Why is it here? What book is Psalm 105 in? You may not know. You should by now. <laughs> but but you're in the midst of a sermon right now. And you're trying to keep up. I understand that. And so you can't remember everything that I've, I've taught you. Book 4 begins with 90. It ends with 106. 105 is the penultimate psalm. It's the psalm just before the ending of book 4. What is book 4? The absence of the divinity kingdom. The Yahweh reigns. There's no Messiah on the throne. It's in this same book. But he puts it right here at the end. Because there's something else that's going on here as you come to the end of book three. Another trivia question. Where's the first place in the Hebrew Bible you find the word hallelujah? You think, well, it's all over the place. Well, no, it's not. The word hallelujah is in two books in the Bible. Psalms and the book of Revelation. And not until Revelation 19. Is it in book one of the Psalter? No. Book two? No. Book three? No. Book four? No, not until. 104, 105, 106, or three Hallelujah Psalms. The first place you find the word Hallelujah in the Psalter, in the Bible, as a compound word, is in Psalm 104. 
three Hallelujah Psalms as you're coming to the end of this section that is focusing on the absence of the divinity kingdom and preparation of running start for the return of the king in book five. You start to sing Hallelujah. You see? And, and what our compiler did is he went back to David's psalm and he picked the first half of it and he puts it right here in the penultimate position in book four. These themes are continuing. What was true in this time of celebration is also in the, true in this time of great difficulty in God's judgment. God still sits upon the throne and he loves you. But what about the last three verses? Look at the last three verses in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Verse 34, listen to them. Now, no, let's do it this way. I'm going to come back to verse 34. Look at 35 and 36, the last two verses. We'll come back to 34. Say also, save us, O God, of our salvation. Gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen and praised the Lord. It's not hallelujah. It's describing them praising the Lord. Hallelujah is an exhortation. It's calling upon someone to praise the Lord. This is descriptive. But did you hear those words? I hope I didn't go on too much there and cause you to forget them. Look at Psalm 106, the last psalm in book 4. Look at how Psalm 106 ends. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. And then it ends with hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You see those words? Where do we find them? We find them at the very end of First Chronicles. The person that's putting together the Psalter. And, and I don't know. Maybe it's the same person. I don't know in terms of the Chronicles that are written later. But is lifting from this Psalm of David the end of it. And he's placing it here at the very end, the conclusion to Book 4, which is about the absence of the Davidic kingdom. Now, I omitted one verse. Remember verse 34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You should know those words. They're repeated often in the Psalter. Look at how Psalm 106 begins. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And then, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's the message you need to hear today. It's called hesed. You've heard of the Hebrew word hesed. I preached a sermon, Psalm 118. I called it hesed. Psalm 136, we did 136. Hesed is a repeated refrain after every verse. What does hesed mean? Sometimes it's translated mercy, like in the King James Version. Sometimes it's translated steadfast love, as we have it here in most translations. It means God's faithful to his covenant promises. You can take it to the bank. 
Hesed. That's the message you need to know. In the midst of your own struggles, in the midst of your own walk, in the midst of difficulties that come your way, things that, that upend you entirely and utterly, remember Hesed. Remember. Remember God's covenantal faithfulness. Remember. And we have it in greater, far, far greater measure in the Lord Jesus Christ where we see God's covenantal faithfulness to his people, the elect, where he died in the place of sinners and where he forgives you to the uttermost. And even when you're going through exile and when you're away from the land, when you can't worship, when you're under God's frown rather than under his, his smile, in those frowning providences, those difficult times in your life, Hesed is true. His steadfast love endures forever. And he cannot love you more because he loves you infinitely and because he's the infinite God. He cannot love you less than he does. That's the gospel. And it comes to fruition in Christ Jesus. You see how extraordinary it is where that psalm is taken and where it is placed in entirely different circumstances, but it has the same message. And that's the message of the gospel to you wherever you sit right now. Run to Jesus. Let him be your refuge and your dwelling place. So I told you the introduction became a a sermon. (laughs) I didn't have time to get to the psalm. But next time we'll look at the psalm, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for this extraordinary book. The more we open up the psalms and we look and we see, it's just, it's almost overwhelming. And the message of your covenantal faithfulness. Oh, what a savior you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.